We read from the Holy Scriptures this morning, from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1. The second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1. We read this passage in connection with the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 37, where we deal with an important matter regarding the third commandment, the use of God's holy name with regard to swearing religiously using God's name. I would call your attention in this chapter, 2 Corinthians 1, especially to the apostle attesting his truthfulness in verses 18 through 20. And then in verse 23, how he calls upon God as his witness. We hear the word of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation." And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us, ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness, or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me, and Silvanus, and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. 
Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. Thus far we read from God's infallibly inspired word. would call your attention especially to that 23rd verse here in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. In harmony with this passage and all of Holy Scripture, we have the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 37 this morning. That's found on page 22 in the back of our Psalter. Lord's Day 37. May we then swear religiously by the name of God? Yes, either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the salvation, uh, the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word, and therefore was justly used by the saints, both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures? No. For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely, which honor is due to no creature. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, this Lord's Day, which continues the treatment of the third commandment, this is really we might call an appendix to the third commandment, the treatment of it in the previous Lord's Day. This deals with one particular application of not using God's name in vain. God's name is the sum of all that God is. God is his names. And therefore his names are holy even as God himself is holy. His name is his entire self-revelation. And when the third commandment speaks of taking God's name, it is referring to our taking up God's name, either upon ourselves or with our lips, how we would represent God or speak of him. In an oath or a vow, one calls on God who cannot lie and who is all-knowing, who also therefore knows the hearts of man. We call upon God to be witness. An oath and a vow are not the same thing, though they are in many respects similar. An oath is a solemn declaration that what is said is true, whereas a vow is a solemn promise to fulfill an obligation. But in both cases, God is called on to be witness and to punish where the oath is false a lie, or the vow is broken. The question is, may we so swear, whether it be an oath or a vow? That was, throughout history, an important question. It was such at the time of the Great Reformation, 
As you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, there were many rash and foolish vows that were taken, especially monastic vows, vows of celibacy. They were based on false theology, taught that by celibacy or self-deprivation, one merited favor with God. The Reformers taught that these were unbiblical vows, sinful vows, that one who had taken such vows must needs repent and turn from that way. Even more pressing was the question of swearing in the name of saints or angels instead of using God's name. If you swear over these things, some saint, for example, you would be calling upon him to confirm your truthfulness or be your judge if you should lie, something that, of course, only God is able to do. Still another question was whether oaths were lawful at all. Should they ever be used? And the radical Anabaptistic branch of the Reformation simply said that all speaking of oaths was wrong, including swearing allegiance to country or to military service and the like. They even taught that marriage is an agreement into which one entered on good faith, not in terms of vows before God. Part of the Anabaptist thinking was that the civil government, if not Christian, was not legitimate and certainly had no right to use God's name in the civil sphere. Important questions. We too live under governments that to a great extent are non-Christian, sometimes even anti-Christian, both legislative and judicial powers that can push to silence Biblical Christianity take away religious freedoms? Do they, these rulers and judges, have the right to rule, to place us under oath? Another thing that makes this relevant is that really every one of us, perhaps even without realizing it, has taken vows and made oaths, in some cases, at the demand of civil authorities. Even if we are married, we once made vows and hold a license from the state, which acts in God's behalf to legalize our marriage. Such marriage vows were not merely personal between one and their spouse, with perhaps a few friends and family around, but such are vows made before the living God and by the requirement of the state. So also even in signing our tax returns, we're put under an oath of honesty by the government. And of course all of us are a citizen of some country even if we have never taken a specific oath of citizenship to become a citizen, even by birth, we are sworn citizens. And of course, besides this, as believers, we make oaths and vows in the sphere of the church, as we would make public confession of faith as we would take upon our lips the baptismal vows when we present our children for baptism. Such vows are made before God and attested to by the church and her office bearers. So we can see the importance, the significance also of this aspect of the third commandment which concerns 
again, our use, proper use of the name of our God. It's in this light that we consider Lord's Day 37 under the theme, the use of the oath. And we notice, first of all, its essential character. Secondly, its proper use. And finally, its binding force. Perhaps it's almost surprising that the oath is still common in our society, no matter how secular society has become. Attempts to completely eliminate the oath have not succeeded. Along with the oath, one can sometimes use a declaration or affirmation that doesn't invoke the name of God. And yet, essentially, it would carry the same consequences for example, in a court of law, so that in the event of perjury, lying under oath, the same punishments would be applied as with an oath itself. And of course, we sometimes see in courts of law or in government, elected officials swearing an oath with their hand not upon the Bible, the Word of God, but upon the Koran or some other supposedly holy book. Even though the oath is not the only tool used on ceremonial or judicial occasions, when one is sworn into office or confirming the truth in a court of law, it still does occupy a prominent place in society. And to that degree, we can draw the line from the Old and New Testaments even to our day. The form, the manner of taking an oath have changed somewhat. For example, we don't place our hand under the thigh of another person as was the case in Genesis 24 and in Genesis 47 nor do we raise our hand to heaven as we see it in Genesis 14 and again in Revelation chapter 10, but generally speaking, one raises the right hand and answers, I do, so help me God. But certainly the substance involved in oath swearing is the same as in the scriptures. The oath is swearing with appeal to the name of God who serves as witness that a person is speaking the truth or intends to fulfill his vow. There's a double application of the oath. It's used to confirm that a person is speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it can assume the character of a vow in an oath of office, for example. In the latter case, one confirms under oath that he will exercise his office in accordance with the applicable regulations. We swear an oath in court to confirm the truthfulness of our statements, of our testimony. A promissory oath is sworn by presidents, government officials, judges, military officers, and the like. They swear an oath of office obligating them to a careful exercise of their office or calling. That double use of an oath we find here in the Catechism where answer 101 teaches that the oath confirms fidelity and truth, faithfulness and truth. That answer mentions another double use. An oath can be required by the government, but also the catechism speaks of necessity, necessity. The first instance is clear enough, but there have been questions about 
what is really meant by necessity. The great reformer John Calvin distinguishes between public and private oaths. The public oath is sworn before government officials or superiors, but oaths that are sworn by a private individual toward another individual can be permissible as well. For example, if your brother accuses you of a breach of faith and you can't prove your innocence because he is unwilling to be convinced by any argument. Your reputation might be endangered by his stubbornness and in such a case you could, by means of an oath, appeal to God's judgment. As biblical examples of oaths between private individuals, we can think of Jacob in connection with his uncle Laban in Genesis 31, We could point to Boaz who confirmed his intent under oath to marry Ruth. Also Obadiah to whom the prophet Elijah in the same manner confirmed that he would indeed meet King Ahab and not suddenly vanish something that would have cost Obadiah his life. Along with the catechism, We could speak of a double purpose, one who swears uprightly, honors God, and advances the well-being of his neighbor. We honor God with the proper oath. One who swears an oath does so in terms of someone higher than himself to whom He can appeal in order to end all counter-argument. Who else could that possibly be but God who knows the heart and all its thoughts? God who is in a position also to punish for every false oath. By swearing an oath, we are confessing our faith. God. No one else, not even ourselves, function as the verifier of our words. By appealing to him, we honor him with an honor that in the days of Israel, God refused to share with any other false gods. What was in force then is still in force today. As Deuteronomy chapter 10 Verses 20 and 21 declare, You shall take oaths in his name. Bring him praise, for he is your God. But swearing an oath can also advance the welfare of the neighbor. A society that respects the oath is relatively stable, generally speaking. That kind of society, people still recoil from lying and expend energy in taking their office or their calling seriously. An oath-bound official in government is bound by the rights of his subjects that have been established in the Constitution so that his administration doesn't exercise tyranny. Doctors who are oath-bound are committed to doing their utmost to help and heal their patients. An oath-bound officer serves the preservation of the state. By means of an oath in court, witnesses are restrained from declaring the innocent to be guilty or the guilty to be innocent. By means of the oath, we are placed, as it were, before the very face of the Most High God. But in contrast to these positive consequences that come from swearing oaths uprightly, it's important to consider the evil resulting from perjury, lying under oath, false swearing, Scripture warns against such an oath because it 
constitutes sacrilege of God's name. Leviticus 19, verse 12. Among unbelievers, even among pagans, perjury was viewed as a serious crime. Sometimes it was seen to be of such a nature that even human punishment was inadequate. The Roman emperor Tiberius spoke in this connection of a crime against the gods that can really only be punished by the gods. During the Middle Ages, it was chiefly the authorities of the church, ecclesiastical authorities who punished perjury. But as government became secular, perjury lost its character as a serious sin against the living God. Nevertheless, the codes of law continued to prescribe punishment for perjury as a serious form of deceit or fraud. The judge is deceived when there's perjury committed. The neighbor is defrauded. And so most democratic societies still impose stiff penalties for perjury, heavy fines, in some cases possibly imprisonment. Of course, motives for committing perjury do not need to be self-serving. Somebody might simply be attempting to protect a, a family member or a friend from an accusation of wrongdoing. But in such cases, perjury still remains perjury. It's a lie. The believing Christian who raises his right hand to swear an oath in court must realize that such a gesture summons God as his witness. If he perjures himself, he is not risking simply some consequences legally. He's not simply deceiving the judge. He's not simply potentially injuring his neighbor only, but ultimately he is himself standing, first of all, before God. And the Heidelberg Catechism correctly confesses in this Lord's Day that we are calling upon God to punish us if we should swear falsely. It should be clear, too, that we may not swear unnecessary oaths. Such would not be the case, of course, if a judge requires us to swear an oath in the court. But it does occur in many daily conversations when the name of God is dragged in for the purpose simply of emphasis. Phrases like, heaven help me, or so help me God. And today, more than ever, it seems we hear the expression, oh my God, spoken so frequently. Some people can hardly say a sentence without adding that. Makes you sick. Such things are oath formulations designed to lend force and emphasis to one's words. Supposedly, we'd be boosting the credibility of our words by invoking God. The more easily such careless swearing is used, the more easily lies arise. We must use the oath sparingly. The government, civil authorities, the magistrates can require an oath of us. The arena of our work and calling can, in some instances, be a place for swearing an oath. Beyond these, the use of the oath should remain something special. The exceptional and serious character of the oath corresponds to the preciousness of God's name. We might just note, too, that some swearing of oaths is wrong in regard to secret societies as 
the horrible oaths required for membership in lodges, and also many evil oaths taken with regard to becoming a member of a labor union. The oath must remain something special. And yet there are those who argue that really not going far enough saying that. They would contend that the oath should be completely eliminated. And they would even argue that Scripture directs us in that way. Throughout history, there have been those who have made that contention. The Hussites, at the time of the Reformation, the radical Anabaptists, might mention Jehovah Witnesses, Quakers, people appeal in their defense of that position to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and to the epistle of James, chapter 5, verse 12, swear not at all. Is their argument convincing so that we should, in fact, avoid oaths completely? We should notice, first of all, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus says clearly that he did not come to nullify the law and the prophets, but precisely to fulfill them. From many different references in the law and the prophets, we've already seen that the Lord considered it a matter of honor when his people took oaths in his name. So we can legitimately question whether the upright swearing of oaths comes under the sentence of Matthew 5 and James 5. Further, we know that the Lord Jesus himself permitted himself to be placed under oath when Caiaphas commanded him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The Lord Jesus answered him in the affirmative. Further, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul frequently used emphatic assurances and assertions that went far beyond a simple yes or no. Think of the many times when Jesus used the term amen or verily, truly. Several occasions where the Apostle Paul summons God as witness and places himself before the face of God as he does in the passage we read, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23. We also read of an angel in Revelation 10, 5 through 7, who with an uplifted hand swore an oath to God We shouldn't forget the passage in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, which speaks of the oath used among people. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Such references indicate that we can hardly interpret Jesus' criticism of oath swearing to mean a complete prohibition of every oath. In addition, the text in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, leads to the observation that prevents us from concluding that Jesus is here giving an absolute prohibition. For notice that Jesus is clearly refuting both Jewish error and superficial swearing. Because it was clear that people were using oaths, not in a spiritual way, but they were trying to use them in a very clever way. Yes, an oath involving the name of God himself, Jehovah, must be kept. But in order to escape the tightness of such a requirement, People swore by heaven or by the earth 
or by Jerusalem, or by my head. And when swearing by these things, supposedly they didn't have to be so careful about the truth. Or so they imagined. And it was against that deceptive use of oaths that Jesus came with his redirecting word, do not swear at all. When you say yes, let it be truly yes. When you say no, let it be nothing else than no. So we see that when Jesus or James says that we must not swear at all, it's important to read those statements within the context. Do not swear at all, neither by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by our heads. Every superficial oath is from the evil one. Jesus is not saying do not swear at all, period. He is not saying do not take a proper oath calling upon God as witness. But he is rejecting every kind of swearing that uses an oath for trickery or for carnal reasons. And certainly among each other as Christians, our yes should mean yes and our no should mean no. So clearly in light of all this biblical usage of the oath, we can see, too, that when an oath is demanded by the proper civil authorities, there is nothing in itself wrong with that. When the civil authority requires this of us in the name of God, we have no right to refuse. Romans 13 points us to our calling with regard to the magistrate In the opening verses of the chapter, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. To comply with the magistrate's demand would be obedience, submission to authority. And the aim of that legal action would be to expose and to punish the liar and to establish the truth. So it can be necessary, rarely within the church, that through the elders there may be demanded an oath to clear the air of suspicion doubt, deceit. And so it becomes clear that the proper use of the lawful oath is essentially that we as his people would always live consciously before the face of our God, desiring and endeavoring to keep the word of God. It's all the more important the times in which we live, in which there are increasingly efforts to take away that word from us. Evil men arise who have no standard of life and morality, would seek to lead the world into chaos and anarchy. As God's people, we must vow to keep his word. Not simply with a special oath or vow, but with all of our life. Our creeds, the three forms of unity, our liturgies for baptism and the Lord's Supper, confession of faith, the ministerial vows, those that are spoken in the ordination of elder and deacon and the formula of subscription, the 
public declaration of agreement with the forms of unity at synod. In all these things, we vow to preach and teach and believe nothing else, nothing less than the word of our God. And so it is necessary that we study and learn to believe heartily all that the scriptures teach to defend the faith against all error and heresy. We ought to vow to do saying with David, I have sworn and I will perform it. I will keep thy righteous judgments. As he declares in Psalm 119, verse 106, even as we sing, we would dedicate ourselves to God. That must be the tenor of our life the way it should be, for we are already bound to God as his people, as he has so graciously established his covenant with us, and with our children in our Lord Jesus Christ through the shed blood of our Savior. We are not our own. We belong unto our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and that makes us obligated to God, whether we promise or not, whether we vow or not. We're never free of God, of our proper allegiance and commitment to Him. So we must vow to cleave to the Lord with purpose of heart, more and more to forsake the world, to crucify the flesh, to worship and serve the Lord all our days. With such a place given to the oath in the life of the serious Christian, its use has to be the gracious action of, of the believer. It's, it's not just a feeble wish. Many people today who consider themselves Christians shy away from making any commitments with regard to the church as an institute, membership in the church. Think of Joshua. He did not say like some would today perhaps, well, I'll think about it. Well, I'm really still searching for the true God. No, Joshua said, by the grace of God, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. David did not say, well, I really, at the present time, can't promise anything. Very firmly he asserted, I have sworn, I will perform it. The Apostle Paul did not mumble, well, I'll I'll see what I can do. I'll do my best. He declared, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Such are oaths of consecration made seriously, not hypocritically. And yet many would say, well, I would, I would maybe do the same, but the sacrifices I'd have to make would be too great. Perhaps friends would leave me. Perhaps I'd even have to sacrifice my job, material benefits. I'd vow to serve the Lord too, except there's such a commitment that that involves be not deceived. The church of Jesus Christ must encourage the continuance in that biblical oath in gracious acts of consecration to the cause of the Son of God. The world with its seducers becomes worse and worse. But in the way of sanctification, let the path of the just become brighter and brighter 
unto the perfect day. We have to take these things seriously. Doing so, we express our gratitude to God for the wonder of his great deliverance. And we say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We more and more, by grace, yield ourselves unto our God as alive from the dead. We present our bodies as living sacrifices unto God. We vow to do so. We cannot do less. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. By grace, we are part of the camp of the living God, his people. We say to them, to one another, to Christ's church, even the beautiful words of, of Ruth, whether thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. As believers, we are all necessarily members of the covenant of grace, and so under the oath of living our lives in fellowship, the God of our salvation. The word of God imposes all the will of God upon us and we would give our word to keep his. The spirit of the third commandment of the lawful oath is that the whole of our Christian faith and life is more and more directed toward God. And so we love to sing Within his house, the house of prayer, I dedicate myself to God. How wonderful. And so the conclusion then is not that we may not swear an oath, but generally speaking, the oath should be used sparingly, certainly in conversation. And that for the Christian, the taking of an oath when required is ultimately a confession concerning God and his truth and omniscience. Such a proper reverent oath can be a benefit for the neighbor. An oath can be necessary simply because man cannot always be trusted. But under oath, the Christian can promote justice for the benefit of the neighbor. So our calling is to be honest, truthful in our daily lives, people of integrity, letting our light shine. As we've noted, as Christians, we are in a sense always under oath, living before the face of God. An oath is a necessary reminder of this, but ultimately it does not change anything in our daily interactions and relationships. We are called to be honest and trustworthy within the community at large. Others should be able to trust us and take us at our word. And we shouldn't have to take time questioning the words and the motives of our fellow believers. Our yes should mean yes and our no should mean no. And in close connection our calling is to be and remain committed to the vows that we do take. Our solemn duties before the face of our God from signing an employment contract to the vows of marriage, the vow taken at public confession of faith to the vow at baptism regarding our calling toward our children, we place ourselves under solemn obligation before God. We take it seriously. We cannot simply walk away from or abandon such vows. In doing so, we 
would be taking the name of our God in vain. And truly there is no sin greater or more provoking to God than the profaning of his name. So let us continually strive to live consciously before his face in the presence of God. Speak always as standing before him. Let us strive to put all sin away from us in this regard. The lie and slander and backbiting and distrust, rash swearing, unlawful oaths. And when it's required to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God over the well-being of the neighbor, when the magistrate would demand it, let our oath be a sincere confession of the name of our God. One day in heaven, our whole life will be, as it were, one continuous oath, a life, a consciousness that we seek God's face and stand and live before him. Do you long for that perfection, that glory? Deliverance from the body of this death? The consciousness of the presence of the living God, even to glorify him forever. Come, Lord Jesus, yea, come quickly. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. Bless it unto our hearts and our lives that we may more and more young and old alike, live consciously as before thy face. May we speak the truth in love. May thy name receive all praise, honor, and glory. Also in regard to the proper swearing of oaths, we ask this all with the remission of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.